0: If you have a Bible with you, you can turn to the book of Ruth. If you don't have a Bible, there's a couple of copies on the back table. Feel free to grab one. Uh, if you don't have one at home, feel free to take that one home with you. We've got lots of copies of it. We'd love for you to have that. Book of Ruth is at the, near the beginning of the Old Testament. So you have the five books of the Pentateuch. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then Joshua and Judges. And then Ruth. It's a real short book. And if you... Uh, flip a couple pages, you'll miss it. But we want to spend the next couple of weeks looking at this story uh, as we transition into the season of Advent. And uh, I love this story. What a great story. So Ruth chapter 1, we're just going to read the first five verses this morning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem and Judah together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were uh, were Ephaphrites from Bethlehem of Judah. And they went to Moab and lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. And they had lived there about 10 years, but both Melon and Killian also died. And Naomi was left without two sons and without her husband. It's a tragic story. And yet a story for us this morning. What do we make of this story? The story of a man and woman and two sons who are desperate for food, And so who venture out of country to a new land and search for food and then experience death and tragedy in the midst of it. What do we make of it? We need to understand the context. And so let's just take a a few minutes to understand the context here because it will set the whole story well for us. What are the first words that uh, the the writer of Ruth says? In the days when the judges ruled. That's going to tell us something about this context. If you're familiar with the book of Judges, which is the book right before there... Matter of fact, if, if, if your Bible's like mine, the beginning of Ruth, you can see the end of the Judges. So let me just read the very last verse in the book of Judges. It will give you an idea of what it was like to live in the days of the Judges. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Right? And then we go right into Ruth, which says, in the days when the Judges ruled... So we get an idea of context... The days of the judges are this idea when there was no king and everyone was just doing whatever they wanted to. Every once in a while it was good stuff. A whole lot of the time it was not so good stuff in the days of the judges. As a matter of fact, the book of Judges can be understood in this cyclical reality a cyclical reality where God lives with his people. And the people are living in relationship with God. Now, this is what God has always intended. That's why the book of Genesis opens with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Right? It's not just because we have to have an opening story somewhere, but it's because God wants us to know from the beginning that this whole idea is that God wants to live with his people, that God is desperate for a real connection to his people. That God wants to be where his people are. That when everything is right in the world, God is with his people. God is with his people. And so the judges starts in the cyclical way that God is with his people, but ultimately uh, people grow apathetic in their relationship to God that never happens with us, right? We grow apathetic when things get stale, we sort of take things for granted, uh, we live in a spirit of entitlement towards God. We're not living in gratitude towards all the good gifts that God gives. And so there's this break in the relationship with God. And then ultimately, that break leads the people uh, in the, in, of the Israelites, the Israelite people in the book of Judges, to, uh, to start doing things that are totally in opposition to God's way. Right? So they start worshiping idols. And they stop filling the land as they were supposed to. And so this break in relationship with God ultimately leads to people going off and doing their own thing. And so ultimately God works in them through struggle and difficulty. So there are stories throughout the book of Judges of these opposing enemies and opposing armies coming in to conquer the Israelites and rule over them for years. And then ultimately the people, the Israelite people, uh, start to, to repent. They start to feel bad about their circumstance. They start to realize what led this whole thing to happen. And, and they begin to repent and they ask God to save them, to deliver them. And so God sends what are called judges, basically deliverers, men or women who God leads up and empowers to rescue His people from under oppression and deliver them back to the original state of living in relationship with God, which then starts the cycle all over again, and if you've ever heard the word "downward spiral," you get the idea of what's going on in the book of Judges, because that cycle gets tighter and tighter and tighter as the book goes on. The time between living in relationship with God and, and worshiping idols gets a whole lot shorter as you go on, and it gets a whole lot worse. To ultimately, when you get to the end of the book of Judges, the scene is bad. I mean, you just have to read Judges chapter 19 to realize just how bad. The scene is. This is the context of the book of Ruth. In the days of the judges. This cyclical reality of break in relationship with God and this downward spiral. In the days of the judges, there was a famine. We don't understand the second thing about the context. There's a famine. Now, to the average onlooker, we're just thinking about, this is terrible. There's been a, an issue in the weather cycle that has allowed there to be famine in this land. But to the Jewish people, they would understand what this means. So no need to turn there, but let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 28. This is what God says through Moses to the people of Israel. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands that I give you, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you only obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed, the crops of your land and the young of your livestock, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction but flee from you in seven the Lord will send a blessing on your barns and everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land He is giving you. The Lord will establish you as His holy people, as He promised you on oath. If you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in obedience to Him, then all the people on the earth will see that you were called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. The Lord will grant you abundant prosperity in the fruit of your womb, the, the young of your livestock, and the crops of your ground. In the land He swore to your ancestors to give you. The Lord will open the heavens, the storehouse on his bou- of his bounty, to send rain on your land in season, to bless all the works of your hands. You will lend to many nations, and you will borrow from none. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord, your God, that I give you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be atop, never at the bottom. But do not turn aside from any of the commands I give to you to- today. So, to make a long story short, if we follow God's ideal for us, if we we're Israelites in Deuteronomy 28, we need, we need not make one-to-one correspondences today, we'll talk about that in a minute. If, if we're Israelites taking the land, uh, returning from the Exodus, we're, if we're careful to follow God's commands, right, if we're careful to follow him, he's going to bless us. There's going to be rain to water the ground. There's going to be abundant harvests. We're going to bear tons of children. The nation's going to grow like crazy. There's going to be prosperity. Everything, the enemies might rise up against us, but they're going to be defeated in front of us. This is what Moses is saying from God to the people. Verse 15, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I'm giving you today, all these curses will come on you and overtake you. You'll be cursed in the city, cursed in the country. Your basket and your kneading trough will be Cursed. The fruit of your womb will be cursed, the crops of your land, the calves of your herds, the lambs of your flocks. You'll be cursed when you come in, cursed when you go out. You'll have confusion and rebuke in everything you put your hand to until you're destroyed and come to sudden ruin because of the evil you've done in forsaking Him. The Lord will plague you with diseases. The Lord will strike on you wasting disease with fever and inflammation. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The context is set for us, right? We know it's the time of the judges. We know the cycle. We know the downward. And now we know where we are at in the cycle, don't we? Because there's famine in the land. We're not at the part of the cycle where the people and God are living in covenant relationship to each other. We're somewhere in the cycle where the people have rejected God and are serving other gods, have become apathetic towards him, aren't pursuing him with all their vigor. We're somewhere between that point and when God is finally going to send an opposing army to conquer them. He's sending famine on the land. This is the story that we're finding ourselves in the midst of. This is the context of it. And then he says, so a man from Bethlehem Now, we live in Bethlehem. The Hebrew word Bethlehem is Beit Lechem. It means house of bread. How ironic that there is no bread in the house of bread. Ultimately, we know the importance of this city, that David's going to come from here, that Jesus is going to come from here. But at this point, the people of God are stymied. God's blessing is not on them. And that story in Judges 19 that I told you about, happens around Bethlehem. So, to give you a quick summary of it, there is a man, a Levite, who takes a, a a wife and she's unfaithful to him. And ultimately, she leaves him and goes back to Bethlehem where she's from. And he pursues her because he wants to be with her and he wants to redeem the relationship. And he pleads with his father-in-law to have her back and then as they finally leave the city and are heading out they, they, they spend the night in a town called Gibeah and the town is so filled uh, with opposition to the people of God that they come up upon him uh, and, and in a Sodom and Gomorrah like event the people uh, surround the house where this man is staying and demand that this man be given to them so that he can, they can do with him whatever they want And ultimately, they take this wife of his and they brutally do whatever they want to her all evening until she lays dead in the doorway. This is the nature of the people that God is dealing with. It's the days of the judges. It's famine in Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. What is the context of our lives? If you were to be honest this morning, I'm not asking you to be honest, simply with yourself. What would you say is the context of your life? Where are you in that cycle of the judges? How is your connection to God? How is your connection to Jesus? How full is the gospel bursting in you? Or would you describe your current state of affairs like a famine? Perhaps a physical famine. Perhaps an emotional famine. Perhaps a relational famine. And we know that while God is not chastising people, that sin in the world is the root cause of all of those things. And that it can only be dealt with through Jesus. But more specifically, because here is the one-to-one correspondence. How would you describe your spiritual condition? Would it be a plenty? Would the harvest be full? Or would it be more like famine in the land? Do you feel close to God? Do you feel purpose? in your life? Do you sense joy in your experience? Or does it seem barren and dry and difficult? Does God seem far off and maybe like he doesn't care? And if we were to be honest with each other, what is your disposition to God? Are you far off from him and maybe you don't care? How would you describe the spiritual condition of your heart? Perhaps, and, and, and everyone goes through these, these times of, of spiritual famine, spiritual distance, let me suggest to you three things. If, if, if you would say that your spiritual reality at this moment is more like famine than harvest, and probably more than half of us would say that's true, can I suggest three things? Three things for you to consider. Three reasons it might be that way. Is there continued sin in your life? Is there that thing that you're holding on to that you won't let go of? That for anything you won't give it up? Because that breaks your intimacy with God. And that makes your spiritual condition dry. Is there sin continually in your life? Second thing, are you living in the bounty of God? When you think about the world you're in, do you think, I can't believe that God is this good? Or do you think, I can't believe that God isn't doing more for me? Now, I don't know your circumstances. I'm not suggesting to you that the difficulty of your circumstances isn't real and more grave than that of others. And I'm not suggesting to you that you should sort of just put on this happy face and make believe that everything's way better than it actually is. But there is a way of looking at the world as a whole where we say that every good thing comes from God, none of which I'm entitled to. And when we live in that kind of way, The spiritual irrigation, as it were, waters our fields. We see things in a new way. We learn to be grateful for the ways that God has met us, even in difficulty. And we receive it, and dryness begins to go away. And then there's this psalm. Let me read this to you. Perhaps you've heard this before. This psalmist is in a time of spiritual famine. He's in a season of spiritual famine. That's his condition. As the deer pants for streams of water, my soul thirsts for you, O God. When can I go and meet you, God? My tears have been my food day and night. While people say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. Used to, not now, used to. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. My soul is downcast within me, therefore. I'll remember you from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, the mountain Azar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. By day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me. Saying to me all day long, where is your God? Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Perhaps, as this psalmist is getting at, we experience spiritual dryness because we have hoped in the wrong things. We've lived and believed like followers of Jesus, but we've actually hoped in other things. Hoped in our job. Hoped in our relationships. Hoped in our good deeds. Hoped in our own talents and abilities. Hoped in our government. Hoped in the structure of the world. Hoped in anything other than God himself but as the psalmist begins to understand in this psalm when he turns his eyes to God and begins to hope in him again the water turns on but soaks up the dry land perhaps you're experiencing a spiritual famine you're not feeling close to God maybe you've never felt close to God three simple questions is there sin in your life? Are you living in gratitude to a good God? And where, what are you placing your hope in? What are you placing your hope in? So, Elimelech and Milan and Killian and Naomi are faced with a decision. They're living in the times of the judges. Things are not good. There is a famine. There is no food. And it's Bethlehem where this horrible thing has happened. What are they going to do? And so Elimelech says, we're going to take everything we've got and we're going to go to Moab because I've heard there's food there. And we're going to get what we can. And to the the average onlooker, this is a great decision, isn't it? Here's a man who's going to do anything he can to feed his family. He's going to take him on far because there's food there. Perhaps he's someone who has a particular trade that he's good at in a, in a nation, in a town that he understands and that understands him. And he's going to go to a foreign land where maybe he's just going to get anything he can to provide for his people, for his family. To the average onlooker, this seems like a good decision. And yet, I want to suggest to you, perhaps it's the worst decision anyone could ever make. Deuteronomy 28, which we read earlier, says that when there's famine in the land, the light bulb needs to go off in our mind, right? That says, wait a minute, something's not right. This is the land that God has promised us. And yet there's no provision in this land. And those flashing lights should be going off, right? Wait a minute, wait a minute, something's wrong, urgent. It's sort of like, you know what it's like to get a cold or get the flu, right? Right? You know what it's like that day before it really sets on where you say to yourself or to your husband or to your friend, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wake up sick tomorrow. Right? That's what should be happening in the town of Bethlehem. Wait a minute, something's wrong. And they should be returning to God and thinking, we've, we've fallen away, we've stepped away, we need to repent and return to God and, and seek his provision. And yet, instead, the response is, I'm going to go take care of my own needs. So get everyone ready, and we're going to go. And Elimelech really throws caution to the wind in many ways because Moab is an enemy of Israel. Uh, matter of fact, one of the nations that God used in the book of Judges to come and correct Israel is the nation of Moab. They ruled over Israel for 18 years uh, with, with a despicable king named Eglon. His story is remarkably interesting and remarkably funny. Uh, feel free to read it later. Uh, the way that he is described is he was a large, large, large man. Uh, and, and a mean man. And God raised up a judge named Ehud who uh, was left-handed. Remember this story? Have you ever heard this story? And so, uh, Ehud was actually granted access into the court of the king, even though he carried a sword on him, because they only thought to check the left side of people because everyone who was worth anything was right handed and God raised up a left handed nobody in that culture in those cultures you know what it means to use your left hand who carried a sword right on him into the court of the king on his right side and who delivered his people by taking the sword and plunging it into the fat of this man's belly so far it says that his belly just enveloped the whole sword And God delivers his people. This is the nation that Elimelech is taking his people, his family to. He's thinking, oh, I heard there's bread in Moab. Forget King Eglon and all the the horrible things he did to my people. Let's go get some food from there. And warning lights should be going off like crazy because this is how the whole issue with the Israelites in Egypt happened, isn't it? There was constantly famine in the land and constantly Abraham and then Isaac and ultimately Jacob and his sons kept going to Egypt to get food rather than making things right with God. And ultimately, God led them into 400 years of captivity. And here goes Elimelech into Moab. It was a long and dangerous journey, nonetheless. And if you think that his sons were going to take care of him, you should know that the, the Hebrew names Metlan and Kilion mean weak and sickly. And they named their sons things for a reason. And off they went to Moab it's interesting to know the story of Moab Moab uh, is a, mer- a person who ultimately his people be- fill this part of the land in modern day southern Jordan is where Moab is today you can find the story of Moab in Genesis chapter 19 uh, Lot remember Lot is in Sodom and Gomorrah and God destroys but he saves Lot and his family and he says just keep going don't ever look back and remember Lot's wife looks back and she's turned into a pillar of salt. And then so ultimately Lot and his daughters find themselves alone and in a cave. Remember this story? And his daughters say, what are we going to do? We don't have any sons. Dad is too old. to Our people are never going to go on. And so their plan is to get Lot drunk and to, and to lay with him and have offspring in that way. And so the first son of Lot and his oldest daughter is Moab. It's Moab. Now, three chapters later in the book of Genesis is the story of Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember this story? God has, God has promised Abraham a son and a great nation, and He gives him Isaac through this miraculous provision. And then He says to, to Abraham, "Now I, I need you to sacrifice your son to me." Unbelievable request of God. And yet Abraham, because he so trusts God, climbs a mountain and willingly puts his son on an altar and is ready to sacrifice him to God because he believes in the promise of God. The writers of the New Testament assume that he must have believed that God was going to resurrect his son from the dead. You have two different storylines here of preserving a people, don't you? You have the the Moab story where the people say, we're going to take matters into our own hands. And you have the Abraham story who says, God's going to have to do something here. So when this story says that they're going to Moab, they don't just pick Moab because it's an interesting place. The story writer wants us to know that these people have decided to take matters into their own hands. There's an issue, and we're going to do something about it. Has that ever been the storyline of your life? It's been the storyline of my life. Okay, God, here's the way I see things falling, and here's what I'm going to do about it. As if. God, you've called me to do these things, and things aren't quite lining up, and so here's what I'm going to go do about it, rather than standing in the presence of God and saying, God, what, what, what? I don't know what you're going to do, but I know you're going to do something. The right decision would not have been to leave Bethlehem in the midst of famine. As counter-cultural as that reality seems, it would have been to turn to God and to do three simple things. To lay yourself bare for divine examination. Say, God... Is something wrong here? Have I done something? Have I failed in some way? Have I I broken... What's going on with this broken relationship? Then, secondly, to go through a process of lamentation, to feel bad about the current state of affairs, to feel the weight of sin, and then ultimately to experience true repentance and to, as the word repentance means, turn 180 degrees and face God again. Far too often my experience in life, when I've sinned, when I've sinned, which is common, it happens all the time, is to say, thank you God for forgiving me. And that's true. It's a true reality. But when I bypass the process, the grace is cheap, and the change in my life is non-existent. Yet, when I lay myself bare before God and say, God, what? And then when I experience real lamentation, real grief and weight over the the reality of sin in my life, and then real repentance, the trajectory afterwards is unbelievably remarkable, is it not? When you're experiencing spiritual dry times... How are you processing the reality in your life? Are you doing everything you can to make it not dry? Are you using all the man made formulas that we can figure out to make it not be like that? Or are you doing as the psalmist said be still, cease striving, and know that God is God? is your experience of faith, the experience that Jesus says of himself in John chapter 6, that I am the bread of life. That anyone who eats of me will not go hungry, will never be thirsty. Man. I'm so guilty of having all these religious, religious formulas. If I do X, Y, and Z, I'll, not only will I you know, make myself happy, but I'll make God happy and then everything's gonna, the rest of the day is going to go great. Great. We do this stuff all the time. And let's just be honest with each other. And then we wonder, why is life such a chore? Why is life so difficult? Why is it so dry? Why is it so barren? Why do I feel like God is far off? Why is there no intimacy between me and God? And yet I'm calling all the shots. I'm doing everything I want. And we're Well, What happens to this family? And this story is tragic. It really is. Elimelech dies. You get the sense almost immediately. And then ten years pass. Malon and Kilion, they marry Moabite women. And then they die. And Naomi, it says, is left alone. Uh, The word left there actually means left behind. As if to say, in her disposition, she wanted to go too. Have you ever felt that? That kind of despair in life? What are the results of the decision to handle things on your own? Death, barrenness, and loneliness in this story. Spiritual death and difficulty. Barrenness. Have you, have you sent, ever felt that? A lack of contentment, a lack of purpose, like you're aimlessly wandering. And then all alone no connection to God and no connection to the people of God and yet when we turn to God the experience is radically different, isn't it? It's life and it's provision it's life and it's provision Jesus says in John chapter 6 I'm the bread of life, anyone who eats of me will not go hungry they'll never go thirsty and anyone who has me will have eternal life This is why, when John says, and in, in, in Jesus says in John chapter fifteen, that you have to be connected to me. And so I wonder, what is the storyline of our lives? Let's not leave here depressed. This is a this is a sad story. The next three weeks are going to be way more pleasant than this week was. <laughs> but we we would be wrong, we would be amiss if we didn't consider the spiritual connections that God would have us draw in our lives. I said earlier uh, there's not a one-to-one connection in terms of uh, Deuteronomy 28 then and now. We don't, if we don't obey God and don't live to God, he's not going to send famine on us because the United States is not equal to Israel. But the church is equal to Israel. And so the spiritual realities of famine... Are absolutely appropriately applied to us. And so, if we look at our lives, and if it is more determined by spiritual famine than not, then we can say we're in a cycle of the judges in the midst of a famine, and there's a choice. Either we keep off doing our own thing, or we return to God, lament, and repent and experience the abundance of love and grace that has always been for us to have. Maybe you're here this morning, and this is all religious mumbo-jumbo to you. I would be amiss if I didn't just take a minute and say, at the bottom line of all this, this is what it means. In life, we can't do anything on our own. I can do nothing to please God. The Bible tells me that all my efforts are in vain. Paul, who was this great religious leader, this unbelievable follower of God, a Jewish follower of God, later, when he realized this, said that all of his good religious works were like filthy rags. Um, And that word in in the original language is way worse than it sounds in our language. And yet... Because God sent Jesus to this earth and because he loved you and me enough to experience the abandonment of God on the cross, if we would just turn our heart back to God, no matter how far we have wandered towards Moab, we would receive from him all the good blessings of spiritual fulfillment, bounty, provision, life. And so the decision is before us. Maybe for the first time or maybe for the 800th time. But the gospel is not just for people who need to meet Jesus for the first time, is it? It's for all of us again this day. There was famine in the land that used to be the house of bread. And if we would turn to God, provision, and life would be there for us. We pray with you. God, thank you for the story of Elimelech and Naomi as a reminder to us the tragic nature of this world. And thank you that we'll find out next week that ultimately Naomi returns to you and returns back to your land and is blessed. And, and, and ultimately, her, her daughter-in-law, Ruth, is going to be the great-grandma of King David. And you're going to bless her abundantly. And so the grief and the tragedy and the depression of this, these first five verses are but the beginning context of an unbelievable story of redemption that was hers and can be ours. And so Spirit, come and say to us all the things that you would have us hear. Remind us, Jesus, that we need not go off and search for provision on our own. That all that you have is more than enough for all that we need. Amen.